From the CSB studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, this is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, live on the MTR radio network. For those of you wanting a two full hours of the Passball Show, you're going to be cut a little bit short at around 6.30, where we'll join MTR's live coverage of the Newark Bears game tonight. So a lot going on in baseball, obviously. I have a very good show planned. Um, in maybe about 10 minutes or so, I'm going to be joined by former Cleveland pitcher, Chris Bando, and then in the 6 o'clock hour, I'll be joined by former Toronto Blue Jays pitcher Phil Huffman. Definitely a ton of stuff to go on here as we approach the trading deadline here, July 31st. Definitely a lot of stuff going on. And, uh, you know, if you're a Mets fan, I'm not going to spend this whole program talking about the New York Mets, but obviously they're in a classic free fall, and it's becoming a yearly thing with them, whether Sandy Alderson's there, Terry Collins, Omar Minaya, Jerry Manuel. Um, you know, as soon as the all-star break hits, it seems like this team hits the skids and just kind of drops down to the mediocrity in which it really is. And if you're a Mets fan today, I think you should be a little excited as you get to see a piece of the future. Um, you know, obviously Matt Harvey making his major league debut tonight in Arizona, nine o'clock Eastern obviously starts, uh, you know, the game, the Mets start 11 game road trip out West against the Diamondbacks, Giants. And Padres, and to, let's be honest, dude, unless they go, they have a classic road trip like they did in the year that they uh, made the playoffs in 2006. You know, if, unless they go like 9-2 and two on this trip, their season's over. And I think uh, any realistic Met fan may not have had too much expectations coming into the season. And I do, uh, you know, I do agree that there's not a ton to be excited about coming into this season. You knew it was going to be a rebuilding year. You knew that, you know, based on what happened in the offseason, that Sandy Alderson really didn't have that much of an ambition to make this team into a potential playoff team. Listen, the extra wild card, you never know. Everybody's got a chance. And I've said this all along. I said this in preseason. Now, no matter what team you're a fan of, you have a realistic chance. And there was hope coming into this season. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, for the Mets – you know, listen, there was a lot of hope built up in the first half with Santana throwing a no-hitter and everything that he did, you know, with the, the low expectations expected for as he came back from the shoulder surgery. R.A. Dickey and everything that he did. David Wright, the MVP first half. And listen, if you're a fan, you certainly thought there was a realistic chance that his team was going to come in there and be a potential wild-card candidate. And it's all falling away rather quickly. This team has lost 11 of the last 12. Um, listen, they showed some life at some points at this homestand, but for the most part, it was a pretty lifeless homestand. Uh, they were behind in just about every game. You know, offensively, they tried to come back sometimes, but every time they gave the ball to the bullpen, game over. And you, you like to say that the other way when, you know, you have a lead going in the late games. You're like, hey, game over, that's it. And it was game over in the other direction when it came to the New York Mets. Uh, you know, as soon as they went to a reliever, the question wasn't, do they still have a chance to win? It was, no, how many runs are they going to give up? 
And this bullpen, as we've talked about several times on a past ball show, and if you listen to anybody that talks New York sports, anybody that talks New York Mets, you obviously know that there's some concern. There has been some concern about this bullpen. And the bottom line is nothing's going to happen about it, definitely now, since the team's lost 11 of its last 12. And obviously when they had a chance to do something, they didn't. And the, the goal of this team, obviously, is to rebuild for the future and to get themselves ready for the next series of seasons. And it's not about 2012. We all know that. Anybody that anybody that's realistic would have known that it's not about 2012. But I think you'd rather – I think Met fans would have felt a lot better if something had happened, you know, right now. And uh, I'm going to take a phone call here. Chris, you there, buddy? Yeah, it's me. Hey, what's going on, buddy? Uh, John Kelly, Pass Ball Show. I'm welcoming in Chris Bando, former catcher for the Cleveland Indians. How you doing, buddy? Good, John. Doing good, buddy. How about you? Uh, not too bad, man. Thanks for coming on, man. I'm glad to glad to get a chance to talk to you. Okay. Hey, listen. Um, you started out. I, I'm, I'm looking through your career stats. It looks like you, you know, you you're able to maintain yourself pretty long in the game. You know, as a catcher. Um, tell us a little bit about about your playing career. You know, uh, was it everything you wanted it to be? And you know, just kind of get into that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't think looking back, you. You know, number one, you can't anticipate how long you're going to play uh, play the game, particularly in the major league level. So I'm thankful that you know I was able to get ten years in the major leagues, and um, which every player hopes for. I think you know I never really thought I played to my potential. Getting at two or three years there that I played to my capabilities but you know that's the way it goes sometimes sometimes um you get the opportunity sometimes you don't but i was thankful to to be able to stay up for 10 years and and um uh, was able to catch a lot of quality uh pitchers all of famers and you know thankful for my team in cleveland yeah that's funny because i was actually going to get into this in a little bit you obviously being a catcher you had a you had a chance with those cleveland teams to catch a lot of very good pitchers now uh, tell us tell us a little bit about some of the, some of the pitchers you caught. Obviously, we we do know the names, but you know, bring bring from your recollection, who are some of the best pitchers you caught, and what really led them to be what they were? Well, Bert Blylevin was one of my favorite. I was kind of his personal catcher in Cleveland, and uh, he had a tremendous year for the time he was in Cleveland, and he was a, a great competitor. And of course, he's a Hall of Fame pitcher, and um, you know, he had three pitches he controlled for strikes. He obviously was. Noted for his big curveball, and but he also had a great changeup and command his fastball on both sides of the plate. So he was a competitor, and and uh, if one of his pitches weren't working that night, he he always was uh, crafty enough to be able to change speeds and and use his other pitches. But he, he was a fierce competitor on the mound, and uh, was a real uh, pleasure to catch. Only two guys I caught two knuckleball pitches one Cleveland, both Tom Candiotti and Phil Negro. So. Having to catch those guys uh, twice a week um, was certainly challenging. Uh, they were certainly difficult days, but uh, nonetheless, I look back and and it was a lot of fun to, to be able to uh, um, make meet up to the challenge. Right, and it's funny as you kind of segued into the you know the knuckleball pitchers. Was it was catching a knuckleball something that you had to kind of learn on a fly? Or was it something that you had experience, you know, maybe through the minor leagues coming up with, you know, you know, perhaps, you know, Candiotti or somebody else? Uh, was it was it was it something that you know you had to learn as soon as the guy was there, or is is catching a knuckleball something that you could actually train to? 
Well, I think it's something that I learned, but also I was fortunate. We had a left-hand knuckleball pitcher that I caught in double-A by the name of Todd Heimer with Cleveland, so I actually had some experience down in double-A catching a, a knuckleball, but, you know, uh, his knuckleball obviously couldn't compare to Candiotti's and Negro's, but I think it's something that you learn how to do on the job. It's something that you try to, uh, you know, catch it uh, as deep as you can and wait to the last possible minute and uh, try to keep your body in front of it in case you do miss it but um it definitely was something that you had to learn how to do that i learned how to do and fortunate enough to uh to catch them during spring training uh, which helped me uh for the season now as as you went through your career you obviously you know you ha- you did have a couple good years 84 i thought was a decent year 291 12 homers 40 41 rbis you know as you as you went through did you ever consider yourself um an offensive catcher, or was it always about just preparing to catch the, you know, catch the ball behind the plate and work on your defense? Well, on the major league level, you're you're consumed with your defense because you know that if you don't play, you're not going to. So I think, um, you know, you get to the big leagues, a combination of both. You've got to hit to get to the big leagues, but once you're there, see the importance of this to be a defensive player um, and the importance of it. You know, getting lazy defensively or making a mistake behind the plate in the major league level can cost you a run. And so you see the importance of it, and every catcher has to become defensive-minded once he gets to the big leagues. Obviously, those that can hit make a whole lot of money doing it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of those years, so I was more defensive-minded in, in my time in the big leagues. All right, and I, and I'm, I've been thinking, too, because I think this is pretty interesting. I would like to hear your thoughts on this. Um as you're as you're working to be a catcher and obviously stick in the major leagues to you know make sure you call a good game, make sure you work on your defense and stuff like that. Does that take away from your preparation as a hitter? Do you end up like let's say like losing a little bit of batting practice or something, you know, just to focus on your game behind the plate? Well, the BP that you lose out on is usually in training because you have to kick so many guys. But um, you get just as much work offensively during the course of the season. It, um, you just get worn down from all that you put in defensively. But, you know, it's very tough to do both at a major league level. Those guys that do it, you know, are special individuals. You separate yourself, your offense, from your defense. And it certainly is hard as your legs uh, takes a total the second half of the season. But um, you get as much batting practice as anyone else. Yeah, okay, good, man. Uh, now, listen, um, as far as – as far as your playing career, do you do you feel like you feel like you got a chance to play as long as you needed to, or did you did you feel like you had something left towards the end and maybe you didn't get a chance, or did or did a certain time hit towards the end where you realized maybe you were done? Yeah, I knew it was done. I had a back uh, issue, and I knew the uh, get first to uh, the back specialist, and he said I had a 75-year-old spot. I quit catching, and, you know, my best, uh, my playing days are behind me. So uh, physically I knew that I was at the point where I couldn't anymore. So, you know, I was done playing at the age of 33, and I knew I had nothing left. All right, well, when you were done with your career, how did you, uh, did you, obviously you got into coaching right now. I believe you're still the head coach at San Diego Christian College. Correct. Yeah, I went. I went right into managing. I managed a ball the next year after playing with the Brewers, and I ended up coaching for them uh, seven years in the minor leagues as a manager, 
and then uh, three years as a major league coach, third base coach and bench coach. And uh, and so I went right in from playing uh, to managing professionally and continuing professional baseball for a while and then uh, made the jump to college. My kids started going to college and, and play baseball, and so I made the switch there to, to keep being able to coach them and, and uh, being able to stay together. Yeah. Now, as, as obviously, uh, your uh, your brother Sal played in the majors, you know, prior to you. Um, was there was there any uh, did it uh, did it make it either easier or harder for you as you were coming as you're coming up as a young player to uh, you know as far as your confidence to make the major leagues, you know, being that your brother had played before you. Yeah, I mean, I was always confident that I could make it, uh, obviously because he it, but uh, it is a lot harder, I think, as an amateur coming up. Um, you know, trying to uh, trying to live up to, to what he, he did and get done. But uh, once you get in professional baseball, it's it's obvious that you've got to produce in order to advance. And you know, at that point, uh, you're on equal equal footing, and and uh, you've got to be able to produce in order to like continue to advance up the ladder. But it was a you know the blessing to be able to be around that as a young kid. There was quite a bit of age difference, and so being able to you know, follow him and, and see him win some World Series championships with the A's was was certainly uh, helpful and and uh, advantageous even as a young player. Yeah, absolutely, man. I figure it definitely would be. Now, back back to what you're doing now as a as a coach. Uh, tell us a little bit about how how it is being you know being in charge of let's say you know younger kids you know you know growing adults kind of you know trying to show them the way the game's played. Uh, talk about the transition between being a, perform- a, a former player and then becoming a coach or kind of a mentor towards like younger players. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons you know you remain a coach and you enjoy coaching is that you realize you're coaching future coaches, so you're able to give them obviously the experience and what you've learned along the way to help prepare them in case they get an opportunity professionally. But it is a more of a mentoring, like you said. It's it's not only their baseball life and developing as a player. It's developing as a young man, making the right choices off the field, and and uh, being able to have that influence is certainly a blessing to me. I'm not only the head baseball coach, I'm also the athletic director at our college. So um, it's it's uh, very challenging, but you know one that I uh, I love and enjoy uh, being a part of not only baseball but being being a part of mentoring young coaches, uh, not only baseball coaches, but uh, in other areas of sport as well. Yeah, absolutely, man. Now, I, I, before I let you go, man, tell us a little bit about about your team. You know how everybody's doing, and you know pretty much everything that's going on with uh, San Diego Christian College. Well, we're in the process of moving our campus um, right now. We we have a small campus. We only have around four or five hundred students, so we're in the process of moving to the city of Santee, where we're hopeful of building a brand new campus and brand new sporting facilities to be able to double and possibly triple our uh, our enrollment. But uh, we've got an up and young program, Doug Jones, who I caught in Cleveland as my pitching coach. So, uh, you know, we're having a good time trying to reestablish and trying to establish a baseball program at this college. It's a very young college in terms of baseball-wise. We've only had baseball for, for uh, four years. So we're trying to establish it and and get it to um, where we're able to produce some professional players and and uh, and be very competitive in our conference. So it's NAI is a very good conference, and uh, our particular conference, the 
the Golden State Athletic Conference has produced, uh, you know, eight to ten draft picks every year. So there's a lot of talent in Southern California, and uh, it's fun being a part of a smaller, it's an entire Christian conference that I'm a part of. So it's fun being a part of that. And uh, right now, currently, I'm managing a summer ball team in the Frontier League, an independent uh, professional baseball team that uh, keeps me going in the summer. And so we're, we're coaching baseball year-round, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, that definitely sounds like it is, man. Listen, best of luck with everything you're doing, man. Hopefully, hopefully everything works out and keep up the good work at uh, San Diego Christian College. All right, John. Thanks, buddy. Hey, thanks a lot, Chris. And I was uh, Chris Bando, former catcher for the Cleveland Indians. I apologize. We had a little bit of technical difficulties. There was a little bit of connection problem with the line. And it's, you know, it's kind of why I, why I ran the interview short. Hopefully, uh, over time, we'll be able to get Chris back on. And, uh, you know, there was a couple more questions I wanted to ask him, but. You know, we, I just wanted to make sure that the sound quality was the best it could be. You know, unfortunately, it wasn't really where it had to be. So I apologize. Uh, thank Chris a lot. I mean, uh, he, he got a chance to catch, you know, in the majors for eight years. And I think, you know, really, you, you look at the, the average shelf life for a major league catcher. And let's be honest. I mean, you, you know, you, you know, it's hard to compare it. You know, you compare it to some of the, the better guys. You know, the Mike Piazzas of the world who hang around for, you know, whatever, 13, 14 years or a Gary Carter, or a Carlton Fisk. But most catchers don't play that long. You know, let's be honest. Most catchers may have, you know, four or five years tops, and then, you know, the deterioration to the knees and stuff like that end up, you know, hurting, you know, and, and shortening careers. And it really, you know, it clearly happens all the time. And it's, you know, you know listen, it's, it's a tough job because you're not going in there to be a hitter. You know, you know the, uh, the Piazzas, the Fisks of the world, you know, are all world because they could hit in, a, in addition to, you know, handle the game behind the plate. But most catchers really have a hard time keeping around and sticking, you know, with the game of baseball. So thanks a lot to Chris Bando. Uh, hopefully, um, you know, we'll be able to speak with him sometime in the near future. Apologize once again for the technical difficulties. Um, I'm going to go back to kind of where I was with the Mets, and then I'm just going to finish this off. Uh, you know, obviously, if you're a Mets fan now, you understand that the season's over. You understand that. You know, the focus is on what's going to go on next year. I think ideally you would like to see your team, you know, finish strong, have some fight in it. Hopefully this team isn't going to lose every single game like it seemed like over the last couple weeks. Uh, it does start with a guy like Matt Harvey who's pitching tonight. Um, you know, you get to see him for the first time in the major leagues. And if you're a Mets fan, I think at the very least you might be down on your team, but I think you're turning on the TV tonight to see what this guy, the former first-round draft pick of a couple of years ago from the New York Mets, does you know, in a major league game. I mean, all, all talk this season going down from spring training when I was down there was how Matt Harvey was going to make this team, and he was pretty confident that he could. And listen, I think in order for him to make the team out of spring training, he really had to be lights out from you know second number one. And it was kind of hard. I mean, you go up there, you're facing major league hitters, you know, you're going to, you know, you make a start, you're going to get major league hitters the first time or two through the batting order early on, and you got to get them out. And it's unfortunately a tough spot for a young pitcher like that to be able to go in there and dominate. And, you know, unless you're Nolan Ryan, unless you're Sandy Koufax, right from day one, blowing everybody away, the chances of making a major league team were not very good for Matt Harvey. And, you know, he, he did the right thing, man. He started a season in AAA. He had a very good season down there. You know, kept a low three ERA, more strikeouts than innings pitched. He got the job done. You know, a couple bumps in a row for the most part, though, he pitched very well. And he earned his spot. He's going to get a chance more than likely for the rest of the season here. And, you know, Mets fans, listen, 
I don't think I don't think you should be hard on the guy if the guy gets hit around a little bit because he's going to have to take some licks somewhere. Whether it's you know a couple starts here and there, and maybe he straightens it out, maybe he throws a gem tonight and gets beat around his next couple starts. Listen, the guy's supposedly got a big career ahead of him. It's going to have to start somewhere. And, you know, not everybody is Tim Lincecum. Not everybody comes in there their first, you know, part of a season and blows everybody away. So I think you're going to have to be a little patient here. Listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm as anxious as anybody to see what this guy's got. I'm going to have my TV on. I'm going to be watching the Arizona Diamondbacks and the New York Mets, even though the Mets just lost six games in a row on a homestand. I'm curious to see what Matt Harvey does against major league hitters. But, you know, I'm also not going to go crazy. I'm not going to lose my mind. I'm not going to go nuts if this guy, you know, gives up five runs in three and a third innings today. It's very possible. It's going to happen at some point. You know, and I and listen, I'd like to see him throw seven shutout innings just like the next guy. But it doesn't always work out that way. So we'll definitely see what's going on with that. I definitely um definitely anxious. I think it's going to be pretty interesting. Um Coming up, I definitely got some stuff to go over. I'm going to go over a Bases Empty blog. Once again, I do have Phil Huffman joining me in the second hour, former Toronto Blue Jays pitcher. He definitely has some stories to tell because Phil Huffman started his career out in 1979 with the Toronto Blue Jays. He went in there basically one season, threw his arm out, pitching every fifth day on a team that lost 109 games. And it didn't matter how he pitched. He was just ran out there regardless. And that ends up... You know, hurting his career. He was never the same after that. And I do want him to tell a story, which I think will be great. It'll take you right up into Newark Bears baseball right here on MTR Radio. We'll be back a little bit after this. I'm going to take a quick break. Be right back. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Aren't you tired of hearing biased fans throw baseball talk at you? Like the Mets fan that says, hey, I love the Mets, but the Yankees spent too much money. Or the Yankee fan that says, hey, the Mets were doing pretty good this year. Screw that. I know more baseball than any fan of any team. Tune into the Passball Show for real baseball talk. This is John Pielli. I'm the host of the Passball Show live Thursdays on the MTR Radio Network from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern. Listen to my interviews with former players, personalities, and analysts, as well as some real opinion of everything going on in the game of baseball. Oh, yeah. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Live Thursdays from 5 to 7. I definitely got some good things going on over the next couple weeks. I'm going to be joined next week by a uh, player in the Philadelphia Phillies system. And he's a guy that I actually got to see firsthand. He's a first base prospect. His name is Chris Duffy. And he plays for the Lakewood Blue Claws. And to be honest, I got a chance to see a series between the Lakewood Blue Claws and the Mets affiliate, the Savannah Sand Nats, uh, at the beginning of last week. And the bottom line was, every time this guy was up, he was either drilling base hits, hitting home runs, he was jogging around the bases. This guy was on base every time. He looks like a pretty, a pretty good player. And, uh, you know, he's, he's going to call in. We're going to talk a little bit about, you know, his development, where he's at, and possibly when, when the uh, Philadelphia Phillies will see him on a major league roster. And looking, by the way, the things are going for the Phillies, and obviously they've won a couple games lately, so they may actually pass the Mets pretty soon. But, hey, maybe, maybe this is a guy that you see sometime next year if the Phillies end up going a rebuilding ro- route. Now, I know they did just re-sign Cole, ha- Cole Hamels to the six-year, $144 million contract, 
pretty much assuring that he's going to be a Philly for the long term. And I do think with the Phillies and Ruben Amaro and everything they're doing, they may make a couple trades here to move some salaries around. But the bottom line is I think this is a team that's going to get up and be ready to compete and you know, hopefully for their sake win the National League East in 2013. I don't think this is going to be a full rebuild, even if it ends up going the worst for them. They have a lot of ground to make up, obviously, if they want to make the postseason this year. And I've talked about it a couple times. I don't think that they're, you know, they're, they're really, uh, their, their chances are very good. It's, it's tough. What they've done, they've dug a huge, huge hole for them. And even with, you know, Roy Halladay, hopefully for the Phillies, he can regain the form that made him the Cy Young and really a Hall of Fame type career up to this point. You know, they got Cliff Lee, who is struggling to get wins. They got Hamels, who now knows he's got his money. He's not, he's not going anywhere. He's staying there. They obviously got a good rotation, and that was part of the reason why they've won five straight National League East titles. You know, throw a World Series and another NL pennant in there. And, you know, I'm jealous as a Met fan. You know, I would love to have that over the last five years. So Met fans are out there trying to say that, hey, you know, look at us. The Mets are ahead of the Phillies. Listen, man, I would trade the Phillies' position right now for what, for what the Phillies have done over the last five years. It would be nice to get in the playoffs. It would be nice to get some postseason tickets for the New York Met home game. And obviously, the only postseason where you know, Mets fans and the New York Mets are seeing over the last several years since 2006 is on their television. And listen, I, I'm, I'm envious of what the Phillies have done, the fact that they've had a very good team over the last you know, five or so years, going back even a little further, and they've maintained it as long as they have. Yeah, listen, nothing lasts forever, and we all know that. And this is a down season for the Phillies. I don't know if this is going to be the end of them. I mean, you look at a guy like Cliff Lee, if he is starting to digress, if Holiday isn't going to be the same, if Ryan Howard and Chase Utley aren't able to get back to the form that they were before their recent injuries, yes, the Phillies are going to have some problems. You know, a guy like Shane Victorino more than likely will be moved before the trading deadline. Hunter Pence, there's a very good chance that the Phillies could trade Hunter Pence before the trading deadline. But I don't think this is a, a, a shot where they're saying, hey, let's get rid of all our big players and bring in a bunch of young guys and start over. That's not happening. And, you know, if you're a Phillies fan, yes, you got to be disappointed about what's happening this year. Because I had them winning the division. I think a lot of MLB experts, baseball prospectus, yada, 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 all had them winning the NL East probably without much of a fight. And obviously the Nationals have done a great job this year. They deserve everything that they've gotten. They right now at this point in the season are the best team in the National League East. And there's nothing you could do to take that away from them. Yes, I had my reservations about them. I wasn't sure about the pitching this thing about the pitch count with the innings limit with Steven Strasburg and, you know, maybe even Jordan Zimmerman and Detweiler and, you know, yada, yada, yada. With all that stuff, I really thought it would be tough for them to maintain the success that they've had from the, to this point in the season. And I give them all the credit in the world for what they've done. They've done a hell of a job this year. Davey Johnson deserves the credit who, you know, I, I even had a little bit of reservations about Davey. You know, similar to Terry Collins being – out from behind the bench for so many years to come back and take a team potentially to the playoffs in his first full season. That's impressive. And Davies shows that he still's got it. He's got it with the younger players here. He's got it with the veterans like a Ryan Zimmerman and a Gio Gonzalez. And, and listen, I mean, I think if you haven't jumped the board 
to believe in the Washington Nationals, where have you been? I mean, this is a team that's essentially led the NL East the entire season. And, you know, basically, and I, and I know part of it has to do with the Mets decline and their typical after All-Star break quit job. And I'm not saying everybody's quitting, but let, let's be honest. They're holding their heads up saying, hey, what's going on now? But listen, the Nationals can play. Not just the major stars on this team, not just the starting pitching. You know, guys like Danny Espinosa and Michael Morse. Listen, this is, this is a complete team. Their bullpen, I told you, all season is pretty good. Has gotten even better with a, uh, Drew Storen coming back. Listen, this is a team that could do potentially some damage in the postseason. And maybe you want to compare them to similar, similarly to a 2007 Phillies team. Maybe they make their postseason debut this year and get knocked out in the first round. And you know what? That might be best for them. You know, Steven Strasburg potentially may not be on a postseason roster. You know, a Ross Detweiler may not be able to help them. You know, so stuff like that, it could be beneficial for the Nationals to make a postseason debut and then have a quick, you know, a, a quick season in a postseason. And then come back next year and start to build potentially what the Phillies have done. And I think it's going to be interesting because, you know, I talked earlier in the season how I was questioning the Gio Gonzalez trade from the Oakland Athletics. I know this guy's had some very good seasons. He came in. He certainly is worth, you know, according to MLB payroll and pay rate standards, he is somewhat worth what he's getting paid now on his long-term extension. But I thought the Nationals may have given up too much to get Gonzalez. And Gonzalez has done the job. He has been an ace, and that's what the Nationals were looking for. They wanted kind of a 1A ace to ease a Steven Strasburg, who obviously is going to take over the rotation for the next several years. And Gonzalez has done the job. And let's be honest, this first season for J.O. Gonzalez has been a success. Yeah, are, are they going to get everything that they are getting now in the latter years of his contract? Probably not. But I don't think the Yankees are going to get the same, same stuff that they're getting now from C.C. Sabathia towards the end of his contract. Cliff Lee, who has shown some signs already of maybe being on the downside of his career, is not going to give you what Cliff Lee did when he was winning Cy Young's. So anytime you sign these pitchers to long-term contracts, you understand the back end is not going to be what you're paying in the beginning. And it's totally understandable. But I think the Nationals have gotten their money's worth from Gio Gonzalez. He is definitely part of the reason why this team has gotten the job done. I'm going to throw a little shout-out there, 25 minutes or so in the hour. Plenty to talk about here on the Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget about JohnPielli.com. You know, if you're a Facebook fan, get onto my page on Facebook, JohnPielli.com page, like it. You know, we're trying to get the number up there a little bit. But I'm going to throw out the phone number in case you're interested in calling in. It's uh, 201-257-5650. I could take your calls up until 6 o'clock where I'll break for a little bit. Then we'll get Phil Huffman in in the second part of the show. And then obviously we'll break for some Newark Bears baseball. Pre-game starting at 6.30 today for the 7 o'clock game tonight. So definitely a lot going on, you know, on the show. Um, over the course of the next week, I was telling you about uh, Chris Duffy, who will be joining us next week in the first part of the show. I'm also working on getting uh, former Major Leaguer Lenny Randall in. Uh, I'm just going to try to confirm it. Uh, if you want to keep up MTR Media, I'll keep you updated on what's going on with that. Potentially, he'll be a guest for then. Um, certainly going to work on some other guests. There's plenty of different things going on. I've reached out to a bunch of people that I've been speaking with. Definitely some interesting ones along the way. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to 
I'm not going to throw out potential guests. When I confirm something, I'm going to throw it out there. And I think that's fair. You know, whether it's a big-time guest, and there are some big-time guests coming on a pass ball show over the course of the rest of the season, obviously into the off season. But um, I'm not, I'm not going to throw out anything until, you know, I got some confirmation. But once again, I'll throw out the phone numbers. I'm going to start hitting some other topics. We're going to go over the Bases Empty blog, which, you know, a lot going on over the last week. Certainly some news going on now in Major League Baseball, which I think is very interesting. I'll throw out the phone number one more time, 201-257-5650, johnpielli.com, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Now, we were just hearing through the rumblings that uh, Milwaukee Brewers general manager Doug Melvin is, has made it known pretty much now officially that Zach Greinke will be traded before the July 31st trading deadline. And apparently that has something to do with the negotiations between the Brewers and Greinke on an extension. And there were some good numbers up there, about $100 million over five years, something along that line. And I guess uh, negotiations have broken down, which will lead to Greinke being traded somewhere. So my question is, where does he go to? There's certainly some teams that can use a starting pitcher. I think one team that I thought would have been a good fit ended up getting a starting pitcher, certainly settling for something less than a Greinke, would be the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I've talked all season about how the Pirates have not necessarily overachieved. They've kind of become, they're coming into their own now. They are becoming the team that has kind of gradually gotten better over the last couple of years, led by their star player, Andrew McCutcheon. And this is a team that could take the National League Central, I think particularly with the injury to Joey Votto and the Cincinnati Reds. I really do consider the Pittsburgh Pirates a favorite coming into the second half of this season. And I thought Greinke would have been a good fit. Obviously, they traded with Houston to get Wandy Rodriguez, who's a useful pitcher. He's an innings eater. He's a guy that you know you could go to every fifth day. But, you know, could they have had Greinke? I don't know. Maybe maybe something fell along the wayside. I know Pittsburgh's got the prospects to land a big pitcher like that, but they settled for Rodriguez, who, listen, I don't think he's winning postseason games. I mean, you match him up against a team like you know the Giants or a team like even Washington with their starting pitching, I, I find the, the Pirates coming up a little bit short. But Wandy Rodriguez is an upgrade for what they had. And you got Burnett, you got Eric Bedard, who has struggled at times. You know, James McDonald, I think, is going to be a... a very good pitcher for them. But, you know, the Pirates coming in, I think, could have used a little bit better of an upgrade than Wandy Rodriguez, but we'll see how it works out. But back to Granke, you know, the fact that Doug Melvin essentially announces that this guy's going to be traded, that he's he, July 31st, he's going to be gone. The Brewers have officially become sellers. You heard the rumblings a couple days ago where Doug Melvin says, yes, we're probably going to be sellers. And now he goes and says, yes, we are trading Zach Granke. One team right now, and I'm sure there's some other ones, but one team stands out when it comes to adding a big pitcher. And to me, that's the Baltimore Orioles. And I really think that you know the Orioles, similar to what we saw with the New York Mets for the fact that they were overachieving, overachieving and had a glaring need in their bullpen, I thought that was the time where they reinforced their bullpen. Obviously, it didn't happen. Right now, the Baltimore Orioles are hanging in there Several games over 500. They are right up there, trailing just the Yankees in the American League East, ahead of teams like Tampa and Toronto, and of course, and and of course Boston. 
here's their chance to make a big move. And listen, the back end of the Baltimore rotation has been terrible this year. From Brian Mattis, who's down in AAA now, to Tommy Hunter, to Jake Arrieta, Zach Britton, whoever they've thrown out there, really outside of Chen and uh, you know uh, the, the guy from uh, Colorado, Jason Hamill, they've not gotten a job done. And if they're going to think, and I, obviously, listen, I, think, I understand how a Baltimore Oriole fan could say, yes, this is more about 2013, 2014. But when you get a run like you've had this season, I think you make that extra move to put yourself over the top. And a guy like Zach Granke may not be a rental. But saying, talking you know, devil's advocate here, you, the reason you may stay away from a Zach Granke is the fact that he turned down the money for the Milwaukee Brewers. If the Brewers were talking about five years and $100 million for Zach Greinke, is he going to sign an extension with the Baltimore Orioles this season? And I think that's something that the organization has to think about. They have to think about, you know, with Dan Duquette and everybody there, Peter, Peter Angelos and all the baseball people, they have to try to think, is this something, is Zach Greinke worth giving up, let's say a Dylan Bundy, or the top prospects in the Baltimore Orioles organization. Is that worth giving up those kind of pieces for a guy who may be a rental? And I talked about this last year with Jose Reyes and the New York Mets. The reason the Mets did not trade Reyes was not because they had you know a gasping need to sign him after the season. What team was giving up Zach Wheeler-type prospects for a guy who was going to be a rental. And I'm telling you, the Mets lucked out with the Carlos Beltran trade. Those trades don't happen every day. And these Mets fans that insist on saying that Jose Reyes was going to be able to net blue chip prospects and the Mets missed out by letting them walk. You're out of your mind. You're wrong. I'm telling you, you're wrong. Because the Mets were not getting anything that was equivalent to the draft pick and a sandwich pick that they received for losing Jose Reyes to the Miami Marlins. And I think a similar thing has to be considered when we're talking about Zach Greinke and potentially a team that may be looking to add him. Now, Doug Melvin said he's gone. So maybe that provides some leverage for a team that's looking for Greinke. And I say the Orioles have to be the number one team that has to be considered adding him. You know, the Boston Red Sox, sure. They could use another pitcher, particularly with as bad as John Lester has pitched this year. If the Red Sox are thinking about 2012 at all and being a postseason team, yes, they may look to upgrade their pitching, and Zach Greinke would be a very good fit. But what other team is going to be in it for a Greinke right now? I don't know. The L.A. Dodgers? Are the Dodgers going to close in and add Ryan Dempster, which I think everybody expects before July 31st? If not... I think, uh, you know, Magic Johnson, Stan Kasten, maybe thinking about adding a Zach Greinke. And I think the Atlanta Braves, who were spurned, who were burned, however you want to say it, by Ryan Dempster, agreed to make a trade with the Chicago Cubs for Randall Delgado, and it was refused by Dempster. Are the Braves in it on Greinke? And I think that would be another very good fit, too. But the bottom line, next, next week, you know, when I'm on August 2nd, the Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, JohnPielli.com. We're going to be talking about which team Zach Greinke is pitching for. It's not going to be the Milwaukee Brewers. Do they trade him within division? Uh, I talked about the Pirates. 
the Reds, maybe they're looking to add. I don't know. The Reds, Reds have had some decent starting pitching, but maybe they, they'd be interested. I don't know what team's out there. I mean, the Oakland A's, who have been another Cinderella team, who I'll get into, maybe, maybe not. But I actually, I've talked about it a hundred times. The A's, who seem to have a nothing team, who seem to have a team that's about the future, have overachieved. Maybe Billy Bean says, hey, this is our chance. Let's add a Zach Greinke to the top of this rotation you know, to help a Tommy Malone and a Bartolo Colon and the other guys who have gotten a job done for the Oakland A's. And, and listen, that's, that's my question. Where does Zach Greinke end up? I really don't know. I honestly, honestly don't know. But the bottom line is he will not be in Milwaukee the next time I do my show a week from today. But moving on, and I did touch on the Los Angeles Dodgers a little bit. And tell me, tell me who else was expecting to see an overnight trade between the Dodgers and the Marlins for Hanley Ramirez. That kind of came out of nowhere. And I know we were talking a couple weeks, and I mentioned it on this show, that Hanley Ramirez was out there. He was obtainable. The Marlins were actively looking to trade him. But the Dodgers, to me, weren't a team that I thought was in the mix for him. I know they were interested in Hamels. They may still be interested in Granke or Dempster. And potentially a bat like a Carlos Quinton type. But Hanley Ramirez? Hey, that, listen. If you said that you saw that coming, I mean... I mean you know, you tell me where you got it from. And I actually think this this could either this could either make or break the career of Hanley Ramirez, who's obviously signed for a couple of years. He's not leaving LA for at least the next couple. This is a make or break time for Hanley Ramirez as a player. Because we're talking about, you know, Ramirez potentially being the face of the franchise of the Miami Marlins. They made, obviously, the change in a team name and a uniform and a new stadium. And Hanley Ramirez was a guy obtained, of course, you know, by, from the Boston Red Sox at a trade that sent Josh Beckett and Mike Lowell to Boston. And he was the guy groomed to be the next franchise player. And let's be honest, after a good start, he's been terrible this year. And I don't know if it's an attitude thing that kind of pushed him out more than anything, but his numbers are not what you expect for a guy that has that place in the middle of the order for a big-time team. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what Hanley Ramirez does for the Dodgers, who I still think are a playoff team. But if they are on a borderline of being a division winner or a wild-card team or a team that just misses out, I think a lot of it's going to have to do with what they get out of Hanley Ramirez from here on out. Can he regain the form that he had before his injuries last year? Can he be a 3,100 type of player, prorated? Can he be that type of player again? A guy who's won a batting title before. A guy who really was considered one of the best all-around players in the game. And there was clearly some doubts in Miami, which led to the trade rumors and subsequent trade to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Those are all things that have to be considered. Is this Are the Dodgers getting Hanley Ramirez of a couple years ago? The easy answer is no, but we don't know. And maybe this guy needed a change of scenery, playing for a losing team for the Florida Marlins over the last couple of years, and then playing for a team that had so much expectations. And I bought into it a little bit. I had the Marlins falling short of the playoffs, but I certainly had them with a winning record this year. And that all being said, it hasn't happened. And with what they're doing with the fire sale and everything, I don't think he's the last player to move 
out of Miami before July 31st, or at the very least before the waiver, uh, the waiver deadline, uh, well, whatever, to add to the postseason roster at the end of August. I do think a couple more moves will be made. Um, you know, I think there's plenty of time to talk about it, though, because it's not just going to be July 31st. I think uh, David Sampson and Larry Beinfest and those guys are already in sell mode. They started it with the Omar Infante Anibal Sanchez trade to Detroit. And then they obviously made a big, big statement by trading Hanley Ramirez to the Los Angeles Dodgers. So let's be honest, they didn't, they didn't net a world-class prospect in return. Nathan Avaldi, Avaldi is a good pitcher. He's a decent pitcher. He could be a, a consistent major league pitcher, but he's not an ace. You know, they weren't getting the next Josh Johnson here. They weren't getting Dylan Bundy. They weren't getting Matt Harvey or Zach Wheeler in return for Hanley Ramirez. They got a guy in Evaldi who's going to be a decent pitcher, and he's going to help you right now. And a guy, uh, Scott McGough, who is a, in double-A right now, has a potential to be a little better than that. But listen, the Marlins didn't strike gold in this trade. They may have struck gold if Ramirez is really on the decline that he has shown this year. But I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens both sides of this trade. Not just with Hanley, but with what happens with the younger pitchers that the Marlins get in return. If they do not you know, evolve into anything, then you're just giving up Hanley Ramirez for nothing. And I don't know. I don't think you could say right now whether it, whether or not that was the right thing to do. And you talk about you know what, what else they're going to do. Carlos Lee, they added. They picked up the payroll. They picked up Carlos Lee's contract from the Houston Astros. And now, I, I bet you they would do anything to get rid of him right now. And remember, and I said this before, and I said this right when the Marlins made this trade to add Carlos Lee. It wasn't so much about whether the team had a chance or the team was in a decline or anything like that. This was a question of whether Carlos Lee was going to be a fit on this team. And for those of you who don't remember, there is a kind of sour relationship that existed before between Carlos Lee and Marlins manager Ozzie Guillen from when they played for the White Sox. Remember, Lee was the type of player that Guillen said he didn't want on his team, even though they won a World Series in 2005. He was the type of player that Ozzie Guillen didn't want on his team. And that led for the trade to Milwaukee and, of course, the free agent signing. Um, you know, uh, you know, eventually, you know, he ends up going to Milwaukee and then Texas and then signs with the Houston Astros. But that led to him being out there. And I'm sure, you know, Larry Beinfest, you know, spoke to Guillen before making his trade. But I'm curious to see how much of a fit Ozzie Guillen thinks that Carlos Lee is, particularly with this team continuing to struggle. And let's be honest, I don't know how many teams are going to look to be able to want to add a Carlos Lee at this point. I mean, the Marlins are going to have to obviously pick up the contract. They're going to have to settle for little in return. And the Marlins may look at this as an addition by subtraction, especially if they're giving up on this season. And it's going to be interesting to see if they are giving up on this season. And obviously, the trade of Sanchez and Infante and Hanley Ramirez and who else? We don't know who else is going to be traded from now until July 31st. Potentially Josh Johnson. And the fact that they are actually looking to trade Josh Johnson is an extreme white flag for not only this season, but the near future. It looks like they're trying to break this whole thing down. And if they do that, 
I'll tell you, man, they look silly. They really do. Everything that they invested in this team by going after the free agents like Jose Reyes and Mark Burley and Heath Bell. And listen, Burley's been okay. Reyes hasn't been the Reyes of last year, but he hasn't been horrible. And, of course, Bell has been horrible. And you add that to the other players that they got on this team, like a Ramirez that they had before, whom they since traded, a Giancarlo Stanton, a Logan Morrison, you know, the pitchers, like I said, a Johnson, a Ricky Nolasco, uh, Annabelle Sanchez, who is no longer there. They had a core that I thought really was looking to go for it now. And I think the question remains to be seen how committed they were. I think they were committed to a one-year splash to do everything to increase the ticket sales, everything with the new stadium that they invested. And listen, it hasn't worked out, not only on the field, but you know, in the bank books with the attendance. This is a team that, out of 16 teams in the National League, is 12th in attendance with a brand-new stadium, which is terrible. And, you know, I don't know if it's the Miami Marlins fans that should be ashamed of themselves. I don't know if, you know, David Sampson and Larry Beinfest and Jeffrey Lurie and everybody that got together and made this agreement for the new stadium and where it's located are to blame for this. But the bottom line is a shiny, brand-new, beautiful-looking and listen, it has its flaws in the way it looks. It's not perfect, but it's unique. And it's their home, and it's their own beautiful stadium. And the fact that nobody's coming out there to see them play is a joke. And I don't know. David Sampson a couple years ago was blasting the fans for not show, showing support of this team, saying that he would not hesitate to take this team out of South Florida if it could. And actually, he doesn't seem as bad right now. Because what are these fans doing? Maybe, maybe it's a logistics thing. Maybe it's a situation where they really don't have the, gener- the, the, the fan base. Maybe they don't have the support of fans in that region to go out there and buy season tickets and go out there and support the team on a day-in and day-out basis. Maybe that's all true. And I think you know if, if it's not one side, it's the other, or it's somewhere in between. But the bottom line is this experiment to build a new stadium in South Florida for the Miami Marlins has been an utter failure to this point. And we're seeing the repercussions of it, which we know with David Sampson, we know with prior, prior ownership with Wayne Huizenga and everybody, this is a franchise that is known for dismantling the team in a heartbeat. And the dismantling has started in year one. Now, what does that end up leading to? I don't know. I mean, could you see Jose Reyes traded? No, because they made it clear that two players they plan on holding on to under all circumstances are Jose Reyes and Giancarlo Stanton. But that leaves everybody else. I'm sure if a team was willing to take on Heath Bell's contract, he would be gone in a heartbeat. I think Mark Burley, with his attachment to Ozzie Guillen, probably stays. But any other player on this team could be moved before July 31st. And the Miami Marlins, as sellers is not something you would have guaranteed coming into this season. And I think it's very interesting to see because this is a team that's underachieved this year, but not only underachieved, but underachieved to a point where it's lost the confidence of the management group, the uh, the front office. They don't believe in this team. They don't think this team is very good. And to quite honest, they, they want to they break it down. They want to shut it down to nothing. And you can't say the same thing about the Philadelphia Phillies, and you can't say the same thing about the New York Mets. The Miami Marlins want to blow this thing up 
And for all of, all of you Met fans and Philly fans that want to see, that, that say, hey, every time my team loses, let's just quit and get rid of everybody and get a bunch of young players in. Listen, it's not always the way to go. You have to have a plan. And right now, the Miami Marlins do not have a plan. And that's going to hurt whatever's left of that fan base and the organization for a couple of years to come now. And listen, maybe they make a trade and they strike gold with somebody. You know, Jacob Turner was a very good acquisition. I like the fact that they acquired Jacob Turner from the Detroit Tigers. This is a guy who's going to be a very good pitcher. He, at the very least, will be a two or a three in a rotation from years to come, which is better than what you were going to get out of Annabelle Sanchez. So that, I think that trade, maybe not this year, because I think the Detroit Tigers with Infante and Sanchez are going to have a very good chance to go deep in October baseball. But that's a trade that I think the Marlins actually can, will, in the future, come out ahead on because Jacob Turner is going to be a very good pitcher. But they're going to have to continue to make trades like that. And I don't know how else you're going to be able to do it. I don't see anybody else on this roster that's going to net you a prospect like that. And obviously, the Marlins would love to trade a Carlos Lee. They would love to trade, you know, a Gabby Sanchez if they could. You know, Logan Morrison, for the right price, could be had. John Buck, they would give away for nothing. You know, Ricky Nolasco, they tried to, tried to trade him, and nobody wants him. And that's going to be interesting to see if anybody else is going to come up and say, listen, the Marlins are having a fire sale. What players are available? And if that's true, if that's the case, then I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. But I don't think the Marlins are going to get another prospect similar or close to what they got in Jacob Turner from the Detroit Tigers. So I think that's interesting to see. We're going to hit up part of Hour 2. Like I said, the past ball show is going to be uh, cut short today to get you live to Newark Bears baseball tonight starting at 7. Uh, past ball show will end about 6.30 today. So we'll be back in a little bit. Five-minute break. Be back after this. Thank you. 